0: Turn with you this morning to uh, John chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 2. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. And when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And in my Bible, verse 12 is included in this passage of Scripture. I know that in many others it is not, but I'm going to read it. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life may the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning, and let's open in prayer, dear heavenly Father we thank you for your son we thank you for giving us life uh, that we may enjoy your creation Lord and we thank you so much that you have provided a way for us to also enjoy heaven with you one day Lord we thank you for the concepts that we've sung about and thought about this morning like mercy and grace and love things that we didn't deserve, but you gave in abundance. We pray that this morning that you would open our hearts to hear what you would have us to hear. Speak through me this morning, Lord. Use my preparation to edify. And I pray that you would just bless this time of study. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I don't, I don't do easy things, I guess. Um, as I was thinking about this story, uh, when I was asked to speak, it's kind of been on my heart, and I didn't realize like, the, the fact that this is not considered um, necessarily part of the original Gospel of John uh, until I, I started to read commentaries. But uh, many, many theologians would say that this has all the earmarks of, of history, and it doesn't disagree with any other aspects of John. Um, and there's some some truths I believe uh, that can be found in here, and some some good things to be reminded of. I think it's a picture of salvation. Uh, if you look at it, the big picture, uh, you have someone who's accused, <clears throat> and then you have Jesus uh, not condemning uh, the uh, the accused in that particular instance. And so I think, big picture, if you look at this, this is a picture of salvation. And I love this story. I always have. I think a lot of people probably do. Um, and I love a lot of the interactions that Jesus has with individuals whom many would consider unlovable uh, or not worth their time. And throughout John, you'll find many of those instances. Uh, the man of Bethesda was lame, was healed by Christ. Uh, the, the blind man was healed. Um, the man that was lame was healed. There's just all of these instances where Jesus interacts with these people in such a beautiful way. And, and I love this story because it is another example uh, of that. And, it, and it's kind of an ugly story too when you really get down to it. Uh, you see the ugliness of, of man. Um, and, and you see the ugliness of, of man on both sides of the scale, on the non-religious and the religious in this particular story. And you see the mercy of God. Then cutting into verse 2, now early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. There are many instances in Scripture where we find Jesus teaching. And that struck me, uh, especially in John, because if you think about how John described Jesus in the very beginning, uh, I believe this is the uh, the older kids' memory verses. Uh, they were challenged to to memorize John chapter one, verses one through eighteen, if I'm not mistaken. And I asked my son last night to uh, quote John one one. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I said, James, who's the Word? He said, well, it's Jesus, Dad. And I said, how do you know? Well, he was God. Uh-huh. And verse 14 gives us further uh, illustration or example that this is Jesus, because it said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we find the Word of God, as John describes him, teaching the people the Word of God. That's amazing. Can you imagine having been there in any crowd that Jesus ever taught in? This is the Word of God teaching from His own Word. And nobody else spoke like He did, He spoke with authority what does that mean? When I stand up here and I speak on the Word of God, I don't speak with authority. I say words like, I believe, or I think. And I interpret Scripture a certain way. And you may disagree with me on some of these. And if someone else came up here and spoke in the same passage, they may say, I believe, and it's something different. We're not speaking from authority. But Jesus Christ never had to say the words, I believe, I think. He spoke with perfect authority on the word of God. And I'm trying to put it into um, maybe an easier to understand picture. And it's not a perfect example. But let's say you, uh, you went to a book reading of your favorite book. And let's say for the purpose of the illustration, it wasn't the Bible. So pick a book. And, and you got to hear a celebrity do a, a, somebody that you really enjoyed listening to read this book. That would be an enjoyable experience because you like the book and you like the person that's performing it, right? But you can't ask them any questions about it because they didn't write it. They don't have any authority over it. They can just read it. They might give you their interpretation of what they think, but you can't ask, like, what what happened in this scene? Could you give me more backstory in this scene? What was going on here? Who are these people? Can you give me more information about this person? What did you mean by this? You can't ask any of that because that person didn't write it. But if the author of that book was there reading it, you can ask them questions because it came from their mind. They're the ones that actually wrote the pages and the book. And so you can ask, like, what, what did you mean by this? Well, they can expand on that because they wrote it and they imagined it in their head. And so Jesus Christ, who is the author of the Bible, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, was able to expand upon Scripture In ways that nobody else could. He spoke with authority. And so I think there's two things that can be taken from this. First, that would be amazing to be able to be there and listen to the teaching of Christ. The Word of God speaking from the Word of God. And second of all, it probably helps explain a little bit, um, or at least one aspect of, of why the Pharisees and the scribes didn't like him. Because they didn't speak like that. They were teachers too. And they didn't speak with authority. And some of them, I believe, truly believed he was a blasphemer. But I think a lot of it was just enmity that this teacher is better than us and people are listening to him and not us. And so in many instances in the scripture, and this isn't the only one, but they sought to trap him. And so if you can picture this scene, it's in the, early in the morning and all of these people are gathered around Jesus in the temple grounds and he's speaking to them on the scriptures. And so I'd imagine, aside from the voice of Jesus, it's pretty quiet in the temple. And then all of a sudden, from the back, you hear this commotion. People yelling. Maybe a woman screaming. Get out of the way! The crowd starts to part. And these, these Pharisees and scribes drag this woman, caught in the very act of adultery, as they said. So who knows what state she was in. Before this crowd, and they bring her into the midst, interrupt Jesus in His teaching, and say, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. I don't know about you, but I've never caught anybody in the very act of adultery. And I don't think that would be very easy to do. Adultery is one of those sins that people don't do in public. Uh, you You don't want to advertise that you're committing adultery. It's done in secret. It's done in private, as most sins are. But in order to catch someone in the very act of adultery, it has to be pretty intentional. You think it's happening. You followed somebody. You may have set something up so that it would happen. And there's a lot of conjecture as to how this could have been uh, come into place. One is it could, have been, it could have been the chief priests and the elders themselves, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, not the chief priests, but sorry, the Pharisees and the scribes setting this up, catching the woman, and now they have a situation that they can go to Jesus with. So this was premeditated. And it's a difficult situation. We'll get into that in just a second. Or... This could have been something that was brought to the scribes and the Pharisees for judgment. They were the ones that this would have been brought to. And so someone else caught the woman. And it would have had to have been two witnesses according to the way that this worked. So two people brought this woman before them and said, What what, what should we do? She was caught in the very act of adultery. And the scribes and the Pharisees went, Aha. Because it was their job to adjudicate. But they saw an opportunity. Let's go find Jesus and bring this case before him. And so they bring this woman... Before Jesus, and I really don't think you can ascribe a good intention here. Especially when it uses the words, and they did this, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But they said, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Now is adultery in the law? Exodus chapter 20. One of the commandments is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery. And adultery is, uh, really what, what, what is it? Uh, adultery is breaking a covenant relationship that God has established. Um, so marriage was established way back in the beginning, uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ said the man shall leave his, his family and, and the woman shall leave their, their family and they shall, uh, become one flesh, right? So you have two people who are no longer two people, they're one, one person. And anything that that design, is designed to break that covenant relationship, is you should look at it like a, a tearing of flesh. It's it's painful, and it's horrific, and there's so many things about it that are bad. But I could probably say on a technicality, I've never committed adultery, and I'm not saying that on a technicality, I've never actually physically committed adultery. But Jesus Christ expanded upon what adultery was. Yeah, my wife's freaking out a little bit back there. I can see that. <laughs> he expanded upon what adultery was. He said, if anybody looks after a woman to lust after her in his heart, he's already committed adultery. Uh-oh. And Jesus did that with a few commandments. Um, so it's, it's not an insignificant thing that, that she was caught in. And Moses in the law, what they were referring to is Leviticus chapter 20. You have, the, you have uh, the law, the perfect standard, which defined what was wrong. And now you have the punishment if you break that perfect standard in Leviticus chapter 20. And anybody know what it says? Leviticus chapter 20 verse, uh, I'm not going to even venture that, about adultery. What's the punishment? For who? So isn't it interesting? I think this situation really begs one really big question. Where's the man? That's a huge question to ask here. Because the law states that both should die. So, if the Pharisees really cared about the law, then both would have been brought before Jesus. And we don't know why. We don't know why both weren't brought um, They could have known who it was and they really didn't want to get that person involved. Uh, That person could have run away. Uh, But if they did their due diligence and they really cared about the execution of the law, they're going to go find that person and also bring them uh, to justice. So the man was not here, but the woman was. And it was unfair. And what was the, the test here? I mean, there are really only two choices that Jesus had. Either you say, yes, yeah, stone her because that's what the law says, and you uphold the law and you uphold justice. Or you follow a lot of the precepts that you've been talking about. Mercy is a huge uh, aspect that Jesus dealt with other people with grace and mercy. And are you going to be the merciful God and say that she shouldn't be stoned? And notice one thing about this. Where did this occur? in the temple, in public, in front of a crowd. If the Pharisees, again, really cared about getting Jesus' input in a non-confrontational way, and they really cared about the law, they probably would have done this in private. But they embarrassed this woman. Uh, they, They sought to force Jesus to make a decision in front of a crowd, so that either way he made this decision, they could have something to accuse him by. Because if he said, no, don't stone the woman, what about the law? You just contradicted the law in front of this crowd that you're teaching. That's a problem, Jesus, teacher. But if he said, no, stone her. Well, I thought you were merciful, God. Why aren't you being merciful? Or not God, but teacher. I thought you were being merciful. You teach mercy. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And oh, by the way, they could also go to the Romans. If Jesus uh, instigated the stoning of a woman over a case like adultery, which would have been considered a civil case under Roman law, that was their territory. That was what they were responsible for was civil cases or capital cases. And they would not have considered this a capital case. And so now they can go to the Romans and say, well, This man is instigating violence. He's usurping your authority. There's all sorts of things that they could have done. And so, really, this either-or is a difficult decision. would be a difficult decision for anybody. And just talking about the the scribes and the Pharisees, the accusers, in this particular passage of Scripture, if you had to use one word to describe them, what word would you use? Anybody? Arrogant. Arrogant arrogant absolutely. That's a good word. Uh, self-righteous it, it, I think would be another potential way to say that. Uh, yes, hypocrite. That's another one I wrote down. So, so arrogant or self-righteous I, I think it is the epitome of arrogance to think that you can, by your own power, be righteous. And they tried. Uh, And and I think that a lot of the the rules and regulations that they added to uh, the scriptures were designed to try to help people to actually follow the law properly. But I think what that ended up being is, is I can do it by my own power, and that's that's not what what was. uh, That's not correct. And the other one, hypocrites, that's another great one. So hypocrisy, um, saying one thing and doing another. Or, or projecting a uh, different public image than you actually are in private, acting differently uh, in private than you are in public. And, and Jesus had some pretty harsh words for the scribes and the Pharisees. You can actually, I wrote down a bunch of them, but if you want to get the the fiery sermon against them, uh, the, it's found in Matthew chapter 23. And I'll just read you a few a few things that he said about them. Woe to you, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. Whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that sanctifies the gold? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, And mercy and faith. These you ought to have done and without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Those are some pretty harsh words. And I haven't even read the whole thing. That's that's the way Jesus described the scribes and the Pharisees. And another thing I was struck by in reading this passage of Scripture is how I have to be careful not to view the Pharisees and the scribes in the same way in which they view other people. (laughs) I'll never be like that. I would never do that. To be self-righteous myself in my own attitudes about the scribes and the Pharisees. I was talking to my dad the other day and and he mentioned, and I don't remember who, who this was or what book he wrote, so I'll have to get that information for you later if you'd like it. Uh, but something he said was interesting. He he studied, uh, well wondered, I should say, why so much print is given in the in the Gospels to the scribes and the Pharisees. Why does why does so much time spent on them? And he came to the conclusion that it's because that can be us. We can be like the scribes and the Pharisees if we're not careful. We can be. Hypocrites. I know I can sometimes be a hypocrite. I can be self-righteous in my dealings with others, in my dealings with my kids, in my dealings with my wife, in my dealings with uh, people who aren't saved. It's very easy, especially in today's politically charged environment, to kind of get that, that attitude about anything. Whatever it is, you pick it, you name it, whether it's a sin that's uh, now not considered a sin, well, <laughs> I kind of get that self-righteous attitude and forget for a moment that your righteousness is not your own. It is imputed to you. It is imputed to me. Ephesians chapter 2, very oft-quoted passage of Scripture. It's not worked. It's not our own righteousness. It's not anything we can do. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. and Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. I think it's good to be reminded of that as we look at the scribes and the Pharisees that we too can be just like them. And I think that's something that we should guard against as we treat others. Then looking at thinking about the woman quickly in this particular situation. She had to have been terrified. Probably first embarrassed. So she's dragged out. Uh, out of an, an adulterous act in public through the streets before the scribes and the Pharisees thrown in front of a crowd of people and before Jesus Christ himself. And she may have known people in the crowd. We, we don't know all the particulars, but this is an embarrassing situation. It's like akin to your, your, some of your worst nightmare dreams. You're in public and you're not clothed. That's mortifying. And I imagine this woman was absolutely mortified. And then, when the scribes and the Pharisees drag her before Jesus and they mention that word stoning, now I've gone from embarrassed to terrified. Because later on in this passage, it intimates that people actually picked up stones at some point in this process. So not only have they said the word stoning, but I'm in front of a crowd of people, including the scribes and Pharisees and my accusers, and they're picking up stones. Now I'm, I'm just absolutely terrified. I'm going to die. And then you look at Jesus. Yet another thing I was struck by as I was studying this was how much restraint the Lord Jesus Christ had to have shown in all interactions that he had on this earth. If you think about the fact that this is God, fully God, yet fully man, but God on earth, And he knows everything that God knows about every individual that he's involved with. And I'm not just talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm talking about every sinner that he interacted with. He had to have shown an amazing amount of restraint because his mission was not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And he was laser focused on his mission. And he showed a lot of aspects of God, very personal aspects of God to people, when he didn't have to amazing uh, amount of restraint. And I think if you look at aspects that we study and we love to study about God, like the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God, we talked about those, we sung about those this morning, it's the depth of these concepts increase exponentially when you when you consider other aspects of God or other parts of God's personality. When you think about the holiness of God, that, that passage in, Revelation where the, the elders fall before the throne and they say, holy, holy, holy. We sing that song, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Holiness. Perfection. Something that not only is not sinful, but cannot abide sin. And because sin exists, if you think about uh, what happened in the Garden of Eden where that that fellowship with with, um, man and God was broken because of sin, sin had entered the world and now God can no longer be a part of this relationship because He cannot abide sin. And it talks about His wrath. And it's righteous. It's righteous anger and wrath being stored up for the day of judgment against sin. And All of these concepts really increase the depth of concepts like grace and mercy and love. Because God so loved the world in spite of the fact that the world had sinned and was a sinful place, that he gave his only begotten son. He extended to them mercy and grace, something that we didn't deserve. And these concepts just become that much more impressive and more amazing even how he dealt with the scribes and the Pharisees. If I had been in this situation, I probably <laughs> would not have reacted the same way. I might have called them out very, very personally. Hey, Bob, you remember that time ten years ago when you committed adultery? Yeah, it was a Friday, and you know, I, I mean, God had the knowledge to do that, and He didn't. And to be honest, He didn't even look like He wanted to engage in this particular instance. He was already seated on the ground teaching. He just started writing. And man, I'd love to know what he wrote. And I'd say everyone here probably has their own opinion on what he did write. But at the end of the day, the scripture is silent on that. We don't know what he wrote. But he did not engage. And the scribes and the Pharisees were insistent. They wanted an answer. So when they continued asking him, he stood up and gave the perfect answer, like he always did. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. What did he do in that statement? He upheld the law and he extended mercy. And the Pharisees didn't think he could do both, and he did. Because yeah, her sin deserves death. But hey, anybody here who's got no sin in their lives, go ahead and cast that first stone. Knowing what would happen next. And everyone was convicted by their own conscience. And they left one by one. Starting with the wisest. right? People that had lived the longest and probably thought things through the oldest. And the the most zealous, more than likely, and youngest were the last to leave. But I'll tell you what. Nobody wanted to be that guy. Because if you actually threw a stone, if you were the first one that threw the stone, I think everyone's going to look at you. Really? Really? You're without sin? And everybody was convicted. And everybody left. And I think the irony in this, when you talk about Jesus' reaction afterwards, is There was one person there that was without sin. And that was Jesus Christ himself. So if anybody could have condemned that woman and thrown a stone first to start the justice, that would have been Jesus Christ himself. And he didn't. So again, he upheld the law and he extended mercy. When Jesus had raised Himself up and saw no one but the woman, He said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. And again, He had every right to. He was the only one that could. And He extended mercy to this adulterous woman, knowing what she had done. And again, I think that's just a picture of how he deals with us. Uh, You you talk about adultery. Adultery is talked about several times um, later on in the the New Testament. And one I think very applicable one to this particular passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because adultery is explicitly mentioned Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortionists will inherit the kingdom of God. That woman was one of these. I think it's good to be reminded But such were some of you. we, we We didn't need grace if we weren't sinners. We're all sinners. I know I am. I know I was. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And you find Jesus in this particular passage a picture of that. He's standing between the woman and judgment. And he could have been the one that cast the first stone, and he didn't. He did not condemn her. He did not condone her behavior. He did not excuse it, that, that sin. But he did not condemn the woman for that. And then he went further. He said, go and sin no more. Again, thinking about the First Corinthians passage, we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified. That should result in a change in behavior. Peter actually said it explicitly, well, Jesus did, and Peter quoted him. God told us to be holy, as I am holy. And we are to strive for that, with the help of the Lord, to be holy. That's that's a call that we are we are given as well to go and sin no more. Unfortunately, when we do, we have an advocate. That's the one word I wrote next to, to Jesus in this particular passage, is we have an advocate with the, with the Father. That's found in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Go and sin no more. That you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What is an advocate? It's someone who intercedes on our behalf. That's an amazing concept. If you think about this in the picture of a courtroom drama scene unfolding, God is the judge, Christ is our advocate, He is our defender. And the devil is the accuser. And according to the law, we deserve death. But guess what? We have an advocate with the Father who says, No, I have covered them. I have not condemned them. I have been sacrificed in their place and their sins are no longer a part of their life. They are washed. They are covered by my blood. And God looks at at uh, us and sees the blood of Christ in front of us. That is is—it's just a beautiful picture of of salvation, It's an amazing thing when you really think about the fact that Jesus does not uh, condemn us. I think it's amazing how the Lord works. There's a lot of passages of Scripture that uh, were read this morning that I was looking at as a part of this study. And a song that I'm going to read the words of here shortly that Julie happened to play at the very beginning. One of them... Um, josh read from was psalm 103 you talk about the mercy of the lord that was something that the old testament saints also knew about he said the lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in mercy verse 10 he has not dealt with us according to our sins that woman experienced that she was not dealt with according to her sins nor punished us according to our iniquities for as the heavens are high above the earth so great is his mercy Another way to say that is steadfast love to those who fear Him. And the song that uh, I wanted to read the lyrics to, which I think really apply here, uh, is His Mercy is More. It was written by the Gettys. Or at least they performed it first. I'm not sure if they wrote it. But it says, Praise the Lord. It starts with a chorus. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, his mercy, is more what riches of kindness he lavished on us his blood was the payment his life was the cost we stood neath a debt we could never afford our sins they are many his mercy is more so much more praise the lord And I will say this morning, if you haven't experienced that mercy, that grace, that love of Jesus, I beg you to do so. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Him, talk to somebody here we'd love to share with you. And you can experience... The mercy that the Lord showed others. We read about in these passages of Scripture the grace that He extended to us. Not only were were we given mercy, which mercy is an easy definition, is not getting what you deserve. Punishment for sin. That was stayed. Because Christ took our sin upon Him when He was sacrificed. But He also extended us grace beyond anything that we can even begin to understand or grasp. Not only did he forgive our sins, but we were we were elevated to the status of sons and daughters of God. And now we're part of the family of God. And again, understanding how all aspects of the Lord just increases those those things, the grace and the love and the mercy of our God. And it ends with Again, I know in my my Bible this particular passage also includes one of the great I Am statements, which is 8.12. I am the light of the world. Not every Bible does, but it's a a great thing to be reminded of. I spoke in light at Christmas uh, when Jesus spoke to them again, and I mentioned this passage. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Um, John talks about light quite a few times. In in the first first chapter, in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. And in John 3.16, that passage that we know of, where God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And the fact that God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Verse 19 says, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. And that's a good picture of the way that, that Jesus is. Light, light is, I, I should back up, darkness is, is not a thing unto itself. It is the absence of light. And l- one single little light is incredibly powerful, and it actually becomes more powerful the darker it is. That's why when you break a glow stick with a kid and they want to see it, what do they do? They walk outside in the sunlight. Oh, yeah. This is great. No, they go in the basement. They shut all the lights off. You really see the light then. And we're called to be, to follow the light so that we can walk in the light. We're called, called to be lights ourselves. Not, not like Jesus' is light, but to be a reflection of that light. If the Lord is the sun, He's the light of the world. We're the moon. We reflect the light of God. And that's something that we should do. Join me as I close in prayer and thank the Lord for His infinite mercy, His infinite love, His infinite grace. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this story that we've looked at this morning as we think about how You dealt with this adulterous woman which is really a picture of how you deal with us how you dealt with us we thank you that you did not condemn us when you rightly could have Lord. that you treat us like a father treats his children with love even when we don't deserve it it's good to be reminded of your mercy Lord which is more than our sin. It's greater than our sin and shame. So Lord, we, we can only say thank You. Thank You for loving us enough to die, to send Your Son to die on our behalf, to provide that propitiation, that sacrifice, to pay the debt that we could never afford. And we love you more for it, Lord. We pray all these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen.